Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to your go-to Detroit Pistons podcast, The Pistons Pulse, co-hosted by me, Bryce Simon of Motor City Hoops and Detroit Bad Boys, a former D1 Hooper, current high school coach, teacher, husband, and father of three amazing kids. And I'm Amari Sanko for the second Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. Your friend, man, he, he called you out on Twitter. He didn't call you out. I guess he defended you on Twitter about coming up with this stuff. And he said he had to do a podcast for school or something like that. Shad, I believe it is, a uh, longtime listener, appreciated support and said, hey, man, this isn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. No, yeah, my homie Rashad uh, goes by Shad on Twitter. Oh, Shad, my yeah. bad, my bad. Yeah, I've known, I've known man, I've known Rashad since third grade, I think. I don't even went to middle school together. He could probably remind me, but pretty sure third through fifth grade, somewhere in that span is when we first met. But uh, yeah, intros are hard. You know, intros are not... I feel like our intro is good. I, like, I think it's good to have like a consistent, like when the podcast starts, people know exactly what those initial 10 seconds are going to be. And then after those 10 seconds, you don't know what direction we're going to go. We can talk <laughs> about food. We can talk about basketball. We can talk about literally anything and you don't know where the conversation is going to go. So... Um, you know, appreciate the support from Rashad. Uh, intros are tough. I recommend having a big family you can brag about just to kind of chew up some, some of the time, like 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 Bryce does every time. If, if I was the one leading that off, it would just be extremely quick and right into it because I don't have anything to brag about at all. I just hope we do this podcast long enough that we can hear Omari Sankofa, at least husband, maybe father of one or something like that eventually before, you know, I, I just hope the podcast lasts that long. So it is an all mailbag episode, Omari. We're going to bring Wes on, our guy. He's going to read those questions and navigate us through the episode. But first, the Pistons did just play a game on Sunday night versus the Lakers. The fan base is, again, extremely upset with the finish. I understand it. I get it. But like we were talking about before recording, Omari, LeBron and AD went bananas. Lonnie Walker had 20. I, I like. I don't know how this Piston team beats that Lakers team when those two are going crazy like that. Yeah, I mean, LeBron and Anthony Davis combined for 69 points. Uh, LeBron chips in, you know, five assists and five rebounds. I think AD had like 15 rebounds and seven assists. Uh, when those two guys play that well, the Lakers should win. Like the only time it should be a coin flip is when you're playing like the Celtics or, uh, you know, like a Golden State team that's like hot that night or just another elite team. But I think on paper, they combined for 69 points. Uh, the Pistons, I mean, Bogey had his best game of the season, 38 points. But you can't really get a second guy going offensively. And that was just that it is what it is last. Honestly, I don't think the Pistons played particularly bad. I don't think there's anything in particular that lost them the game. This was just a, you played two of the top 15 guys in the league and they both had, you know, top 15 nights. And it's just, what can you do? You know, they took them down to the wire. They cut it to two uh, with like a minute left and, you know, just couldn't close it out. So, uh, you know, I think this is a loss that to me, you know, if it was football, it'd be like a quote unquote good loss to help you at the end of the year. You know, an 82 game season is just something you can build off of and, and go from there. Yeah, and there's some stuff at the end of the game, and I'll probably tweet about it on Monday and have a breakdown and all that stuff. Like, you always want to look into those things and grow those things. I talked about it with you. Like, I think the Pistons could have win a heavy defensive lineup late in the game. I believe they were down two in that situation, and Austin Reeves hits a huge, tough, contested three in the corner, and Jaden Ivey made a huge mistake helping off strong side corner. But as you say, do you want Jaden Ivey on the bench in that situation because he's one of your worst defenders? Or do you want rookie Jaden Ivey in his 20-whatever game of the season learning from that mistake? Because now tomorrow you can bring Jaden Ivey in and show him the film, and maybe he doesn't make that mistake again. So it's a catch-22. There's, there's pros and cons of it. But at the end of the day, the team competed, and they played a Lakers team at their best to, what, a five-point loss. So... I don't walk away from tonight that upset. I guess it ended up seven. 
And I also think Dwayne's done a good job of kind of fighting that line of let's let our veterans come in and try to win this game and let's give the young guys a chance to show what they could do. And, you know, I think I think as a, a, a coach, you're kind of jumping on a grenade when you are coaching a rebuilding team because a lot of the fan base is still going to measure you by wins and losses, even though there's a night like tonight where maybe it would have been better to bench the young guys. And then you have another part of the fan base who's like, well, you know, like you need to give the young guys opportunities, but then you also want to see people win. And you can't do everything at once. Sometimes you're going to put the young guys and they're going to lose. And that's just kind of how it goes. But, you know, I thought tonight was a good night, you know, for Ivy to get those reps. You know, I think he's probably been more down than up over the last month or so. And could just be a, you know, a, a rookie slump. Like he's played, I think, 24 or 25 games. So that's going to happen. Uh, but, you know, just to experience those moments is something Dwayne talks about, I think is good. And um, so I was going to lead to a win. But uh, you know, at the same time, what, what can you do, right? I mean, it's LeBron. You know, you need all LeBron's going to come to Detroit with, uh, you know, com- completely locked in, right? So. After what happened last time, you could tell that he was locked in right from the start. And LeBron is extremely petty to begin with. And so you knew he was going to come locked in. And I just want to say real quick, and then we'll start the mailbag because we had a ton of submissions and we appreciate you guys so much for that. We love that engagement. I do like that Coach Casey has switched up his lineups. He switched up who he finishes with. Tonight, Sadiq was shooting the ball well. Isaiah Stewart was not playing well, so he finished the game with Sadiq. We've seen him insert Jalen Duran into the starting lineup since the last time we recorded. You know, maybe it's not always the right decision or what the fan base wants, but you can't say that Coach Casey hasn't tried to diversify and try different things from game to game and within games, Omari. No, you haven't. And we talked to him about that lineup change with Duran, and he, he brought up an interesting point that we actually haven't talked about as much, which is that, you know, he felt that sometimes Isaiah Stewart and Marvin Bagley III kind of got wires crossed on offense. Like, do you take the dunker spot or do I take the dunker spot or kind of this and that? Because they're both, you know, like Bagley can be effective from different areas on the floor. He's been kind of dabbling with that three as well. Yeah. And, you know, he just felt that it would be easier just to have Jalen Duran. I mean, well, Dwayne didn't say this, but obviously that's their future front court. But uh, what Dwayne did say is that, you know, Duran is just going to, he's always going to roll. He's always going to go into the dunker spot. He lives at the rim. And that frees Isaiah to be more of like that pure spot up guy. He doesn't have to try to switch places with uh, Bagley every time they go down the, the floor. So I actually thought that made a lot of sense. You know, Duran's 19, he's going to have rookie mistakes. He kind of got into foul trouble tonight. But overall, that's kind of, you know, when he makes line of decisions, that's the stuff he's thinking about, right? It's very de- developmental focused. And I think starting Durant's a cloud pleasing move anyway, so they don't really have to justify it. But, uh, but we have seen Dwayne just try to maximize guys. And I think that that's, you know, something that kind of goes understated sometimes. It's like the coaching staff has reasons and rationale for everything they do, Amari. Whether we agree with it or not, I guarantee you they've sat in on meetings and had conversations and they have a reason. Whether Again, whether we like it or agree with it or not, I guarantee you they're not just throwing darts at the board. So let's get into this, Amari. Wes, we're going to bring you in. Wes is going to introduce each of the questions again. Thank you so much to everybody that submitted a question. Wes, get us started here for number one, and we'll get this thing rolling. To start off, we've got got two from Pistons Nation on Twitter. So the first one is, who can the Pistons acquire at the trade deadline, if anyone, that could become a team leader by next season. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting question. Uh, I guess I guess one, it kind of depends on what you mean by team leader, which to me is just a guy who's ready to come in and immediately kind of own the locker room. So to me, that just reads superstar. Like, I just don't see how a role player could come in and uh, kind of immediately have that type of role from the... You know, I mean, like, I guess if it's a veteran, like, let's say you trade for PJ Tucker or whatever, like, hey, he's going to come in and have, like, that respect and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I guess one, I, I mean, like, what's your take on, like, team leader here? Because I think, like, to me, it's, it, it reads superstar, somebody who's going to be able to kind of command the team, but uh, like, I want to make sure we're on the same page so that we can kind of tackle, tackle this question the same way. Yeah, so I, I read it as someone that was going to come in and be like the leader of the team, maybe not like a superstar. So I kind of took it the other way, and I thought it was interesting in that sense, and I wonder if this person feels like Cade Cunningham isn't a team leader, if maybe he feels like, we talked about a pod or two ago, Isaiah Stewart kind of becoming the the soul of this team and the emotional leader. And so I wonder if there's part of the fan base And maybe we've already forgot a little bit about Cade Cunningham because we haven't seen him play in almost a month, even though he's always shooting and warming up and shooting around at practice. And that's very interesting to all of us. But 
I, I don't know that this team needs a leader. Now, this team does need another dude, like another big-time player. So if that's what they're asking, I don't think it happens at this trade deadline, Omari. I think at the very earliest that player is acquired via trade, probably not free agency because I don't think that guy is in free agency this offseason over the summer. So I don't see a big acquisition like that coming at the trade deadline. No, I mean, you could never rule it out 100%, but my sense is that this team has kind of lined its chips up to make a leap next season. You look at the cap space this upcoming offseason and, um, you know, just all the work they've done to kind of get this roster to where they, you know, feel that this team can compete. And the K couldn't have any injury, obviously, kind of changes the calculus a little bit. But still, we've seen this team um, really kind of come into its own over the last month. And they have been a lot more competitive. And I think you kind of look at the wins and losses and, there haven't been many gimme games at all, you know, but they've gotten some really big wins over Utah, over Denver, over uh, Dallas. So this team is at a spot now where I don't think you have to make a big move. You can kind of j- just keep everybody in. You have your young guys. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later. But um, overall, like, I don't think this is a, a trade deadline where, you know, people can look forward to like something big happening. Um, like I don't. And also the second part of the question is Grant Williams even remotely possible. I'm just going to say no, because I have no idea why Boston betrayed him or what the Pistons could even give up. That would make it worthwhile for Boston, you know, just give away Grant Williams gives on both ends of the floor. So if you're looking for a Grant Williams role player to come in, I would just I think I think it's two things, right? It's one, who do the Pistons give up to acquire that type of guy? Uh, you know, because they still want a future first round pick, and you know, I doubt that they want to give up really good draft capital, you know, for another role player in, in a lost season more than likely. And then two, you know, what's the incentive for another team? Like, who on this roster is enticing enough to other teams to where you can acquire that type of guy? Like, obviously, uh, Bogdanovic would you know check that box, but you know, does a Bogdanovic Grant Williams swap accomplish anything for either team? Probably not. So. Um, yeah, I think for a variety of reasons, this trade deadline probably doesn't quite, you know, scratch that itch for, you know, fans who might want a big move. And I do think Grant Williams is a free agent this summer, but he's going to cost quite a bit. And if you acquire Grant Williams, or I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, I think there's a John Collins question later. I just wonder what that does to Isaiah Stewart, because I don't think Grant Williams is signing with the Pistons to come off the bench. And you're not going to trade for John Collins and bring him off the bench. So I just do have questions or wonder what that would do with the progression and the development with Isaiah Stewart at the four. But uh, Wes, what is the next question we have from Pistons Nation? Like you said, also from Pistons Nation. So he asks, if the Pistons were at ground zero to start this season, where should we, the fans, expect to see the team at the start of next season? Uh, so will they actually be fit to compete? Kind of like I alluded to earlier, uh, you know, I think this team kind of viewed uh, this rebuild as ideally a three-year process. You have three lotteries. You know, obviously you got three picks in 2020. And you got two lottery picks this year. You got Kate last year. So you have a really strong core. And then more than likely, you could make a fourth dip into the lottery in this year's draft, which is incredibly strong in the top two, you know, it falls off a little bit after that. But you still have guys like Amen Thompson and some other guys who I think have very clear star potential. And then you couple that with the cap space that they're going to have this offseason. They'll be among the league leaders. Uh, you have some really tradable contracts. You have the bogey contract. You have the Alec Burks contract. If they pick up his team option, you have a lot of pieces you can maneuver with uh, to really bring in a, another star or kind of do what uh, the um, the Hawks did a couple of years ago where they got Gallinari and all these good role pieces, Clint Capella, and then they ended up making a postseason run. And I think Trey Young was in his third season at that point. So uh, some parallels there. But uh, if this year was ground zero, I really do think even with the Kate injury this year that the way their chips are lined up, they can really make that push next year and kind of get out of the NBA basement and start to make some playoff noise. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Omari. I think if the offseason goes the way Troy Weaver has mapped out, because here's the other thing, he may have a free agent in mind that they're actually just not able to land. He may have a trade in mind where the other team decides to go with a different deal because, you know, they like that one better or some other team overpays uh, for that trade. So, We don't know what could happen behind the scenes that could possibly derail this, but you outlined all of the quote-unquote assets or avenues that this team has this offseason to go and be competitive next season. And that's assuming reasonable and rational progression from a Cade Cunningham, who hopefully would be healthy, Jaden Ivey, Jalen Duran, 
Stewart and those guys. I think there's absolutely a path to this team being competitive for a play-in next season. And I just want to say this because I know what fans are going to say as well. That's what we said two years ago. That's what we said this. We were all wrong. I was wrong. I was big time wrong two years ago when they drafted Kate Cunningham and I thought they were going to make the playoffs. Like I look back and like, what the heck was I talking about? How did the how did the Detroit Free Press decide to give me a podcast after making that prediction? But coming into this season, I had learned my lesson a little bit. And I'm not saying fans are wrong for high, having high expectations, but I don't think playing was ever super reasonable for this season. We've talked about that. I think next year with the offseason that could happen, that's the first time we have reasonable expectations for them to compete that way. And I think the bottom line for me, and I think what kind of tends to get lost when we talk about these playoff discussions, is just looking at the rest of the conference. I mean, yeah. You have uh, a Miami Heat team that, you know, last I checked, they're like outside of the play-in race or like just barely getting in there. You know, they have Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo and Tyler Hero and I'm like guys who if they if the Pistons traded for them now they would be the best player on the team. So you know and they're not in the playoff race. Like the Pistons beat a Dallas a Dallas team the other week that has Luka Doncic. He is the best player in the NBA. One of the best like he's in year four. One of the best players to ever touch a basketball. And after they lost to the Pistons, they were below 500. And it's like. If Luka Doncic can't get the Dallas Mavericks to 500, what makes you think the Pistons are going to be anywhere close to that this year? Like, without it doesn't make Kate any sense. Now. And, you know, especially without Kate, you look at the Chicago Bulls, they have DeMar DeRozan, exactly like they have all these guys, and they're below 500. So you see really talented teams, improving all stars, not even getting to 500. And you look at the East going coming into the season, and you actually thought it was realistic that some of these teams would fall out just because the, the East is so talented. Then you get to the Pistons, who don't even have Cade, and it's like they're obviously going to be one of the worst teams in the NBA. Like there is, there was no question in my mind that they would be a bottom three team in the East, and that's kind of how it's shaping up to be. So that's just one thing I always try to remind fans: is look at the rest of the conference. If you have teams with proven all stars not getting it done, and the Pistons have no proven all stars, that sets their ceiling pretty low. And that's why, you know, again, getting back to the question, I think that next year is probably realistically the first year that they could truly compete. And by compete, I mean actually be the eighth seed or better. I don't mean scrapping by and maybe getting the play-in. I mean, like actually, you know, being above 500. I think next year uh, they have a real chance of doing that. And I, I just want to emphasize that depends on where the draft pick lands. That depends on what Troy Weaver is able to acquire in the offseason with that cap space and flexibility. But, Wes, what do we got next, my friend? Bryce, I'll ask this. To you first, uh, this is from Cedric Welton on Twitter. He asks, what teams are realistic trade partners for Bojan Bogdanovic? And is there any merit to the Pistons having interest in John Collins? So we touched on the John Collins thing a little bit. I don't know that I'm there. Maybe I'm too high on Isaiah Stewart as a four-man. I know coming, you know, Sunday night, he didn't have a great game. I bought into the three-point shooting. He's flashed some of the other stuff. I just think that does hurt his progression and his development playing that a little bit. As for Boyan, I wrote down a few teams, Omari. Like, I don't even know if they make sense, and I don't know what the trade is. I just went through some of the contenders. So to me, like, the Warriors are needing help just having another guy, like somebody else that can score. Like, trade him to the Warriors, and the Warriors would probably bring him off the bench if Boyan would accept that. I assume he would because, you know, he's going to be playing for a championship. Let him just be a bucket off the bench and trade some of those young guys. I put the Suns, who kind of have a hole there. And then another team is the Cleveland Cavaliers. They're really good at the guard spots with Spida and Darius Garland. They're really good up front with Jared Allen and Evan Mobley. But they have a hole right there at the three position, Omari, that I feel like, you know, Boyan could fit right in and, and be really helpful for that team. Yeah, I mean, I love the fit in uh, Phoenix. Um, you know, they still, I don't know what's going on between them and, and uh, Jay, Jay Crowder. I guess it's like a steering contest waiting for something to happen, but uh, I mean, let's, let's get this out the way first. Every contending team in the NBA could use Boyan Bogdanovic. Um, as far as realistic trade partners, I think what well, is there's an argument from a need standpoint, which is that a lot of contenders could use a guy, you know, averaging 20 points a game and better than 50% shooting, you know, and could put up 38 against the Lakers, but I think it gets into an asset discussion where it's like how many of these teams have an asset that the Pistons would actually want to buy that. You know, the Lakers, uh, I just don't think a 2025 and 27 pick are going to have less interest to a Pistons team that would like to be better long before then. And the Lakers, given how they tend to rebuild, which just means going out and getting a top 10 player and keeping it going, those picks may not be that good anyway. So, you know, it's tough for me to see the Lakers still being, you know, done unless you know, maybe third team comes in or there's some sort of added sweetener, like something else would kind of have to come through for that. Uh, you know, Pelicans more likely going to have a, a very late first round pick. 
And all these teams that are good, you know, just from an asset standpoint, don't really have a lot. You know, the Atlanta Hawks are not a deep team at all when you look at that roster because they went all in uh, to get better this past offseason. So, you know, from an asset standpoint, what do they give up? You know, are they like, you could have A.J. Griffin, who's been really, really good for him in the game with the shot tonight. They're not getting rid of him right now, I don't think. Uh, Like, they would be crazy to get rid of him. Uh, The only team that has, to me, a really good asset that I think the Pistons would be interested in is the New Orleans Pelicans, who own that Lakers Lakers pick this year. And the Lakers, if they miss the playoffs, you know, now you have two lottery picks in a draft that has um, a seven foot four version of Kevin Durant and Scoot Henderson, who is like, you know, if John Wall and Kyrie Irving fused together, right? You know, so to me, I think if, you know, the Pelicans offer that pick, maybe the Pistons are like, okay, like we like Bogey, we extended him, he's good. And whoever we get in this upcoming draft is not going to be as good as Bogey was for us this year, more than likely, unless it's a top two pick. And even then, it's not a guarantee. But at the very least, then you're getting into the discussion of an asset that, you know, can help this team now and help this team later, you know, which I think as we get deeper into this rebuild, you know, the Pistons are probably less likely than they were a year ago or two years ago to, uh, make win later moves. They're looking more at like let's try to get this thing going. You know, it's just tough. Like you know, I think I think Boyan is the most desirable asset on the team. But when you get to like actual packages, that makes sense. It's like maybe just keep the guy averaging twenty points and fifty percent percent shooting. Right? Like what asset can make up for what he's giving us right now? All right. The next question I know dives into that a little deeper. But let's go to a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll take a question from Mark Lee about all the tradable assets on this roster. Alyssa Robinson for the Detroit Free Press. When you wake up every morning, what's the first thing you do? Check your email? Me too. And when you sign up for our daily briefing newsletter, you'll get all the latest news sent directly to your inbox so you can wake up and be ready for the day. We also have newsletters about COVID-19 in Michigan, the latest entertainment headlines, as well as Woodward 248, a newsletter specifically for people living and working in Southeast Oakland County. And don't forget about automotive headlines and all the latest news from our Michigan sports teams. We have a newsletter for every personality and preference. Just head to freep.com forward slash newsletters to sign up for any one of these great options and more. All right, we're back with segment two. And Wes, how about you go ahead and, and another trade deadline area into question from uh, Mike Lee here. And I think we're going to do a lot of trade stuff today based on uh, the questions we have in front of us. Yeah, we did We did get a decent number of trade ones. So, uh, Omari, this is for you. Mark Lee, he's asking, who's most likely to be moved by the trade deadline? And how would you gauge overall support for Coach Casey at this stage of the rebuild? Start with the second part of that, Omari. All right. How would I gauge overall support for Coach Casey at this stage of the rebuild? Well, if we're talking about from the organizational standpoint, you know, I still think he has good support. Uh, you know, like this team has competed, you know, much more than they have at this point last year. And, you know, I know the record's not great. They have seven wins and they've played almost 30 games. But uh, I think you just see the development from Killian, from Isaiah Stewart, who's shooting like 36, 37 percent from three. Uh, you know, like Sadiq, like his outside shot hasn't fallen, but he's having his best season inside the arc by far. So I think for him, it's just getting everything to click at once and not, you know, just certain parts of his game. But you've seen development. Um, you know, I think I think Dwayne, you know, has good support from the front office, even still, uh, you know, it seems in rebuilt mode. And to me, I just it's just hard for me to see why they would do anything drastic for a team that, you know, I think they're comfortable, you know, not sending the league on fire this season just given the nature of the rebuild so I still think Dwayne Casey has good support like I know you know fans get tired of the losing and all that but you know I think the Pistons were aware that rebuilds take time and they're not judging them by the wins and losses you know I think they've been happy with the player development so far I would say 100% from the organization and 10% from the fan base. That's what I put. Like, I don't think the organization has any issues right now. And I'll stick to, I think, two years from now, he's a member of the front office. I do think Casey has some supporters in the fan base. But in general, and I had someone remind me, I think it was Vince Ellis actually reminded me this the other day. Not everybody's, not the entire fan base's opinion is represented by the opinions I see on Twitter. That's that's kind of my only interaction with the fan base is Twitter, some of the free press comments, some of the Detroit bad boys comments but I don't you know I don't live in Detroit so I don't just meet Pistons fans walking down the street and get a chance to talk to them so there may be more support from the fan base than what I'm thinking as for the first part of the question I'll just say this real quick Amari I think Noel is definitely off this team by the trade deadline 
And then I'm curious what they end up doing with Tommy, who seems to have fallen out of the rotation, even with Isaiah Livers not playing because of the play of Kevin Knox. And then I think we probably see Burks and Boyan carried over into the offseason. I mean, like there, there's always a, a chance that, you know, a deal you don't expect comes through. And I think, you know, you probably have to part with at least one of Bogey or Burks if it's a worthwhile deal just because of the way they've played and the nature of their contracts. Yeah, Derlin's, you know, I think uh, he's probably not a big, if you just look at the way the season's kind of gone, where you see that, you know, he's been more of a backup option, you know, for, uh, you know, Duran and, you know, I think the way Dwayne Case kind of talks about the emergency glass. Uh, like, it, w- it, w- it wouldn't shock me if he's out on the team by the time we get to March. Like, I'll just say that. You know, I think that that's probably toward the top of the list. Uh, Hami's interesting to me, you know, because I guess for me, I kind of wonder from an asset standpoint, like, what could you get for him? Uh, like, he's a very high energy, um, you know, like wing slash forward. And, you know, his athleticism's great. Um, you know, but the bottom line is that, you know, he's not a great shooter and the defense kind of comes and goes. So, you know, I kind of wonder, do you get a second? Like kind of what's the, you know, package that kind of makes sense, you know, for Hami, you know, especially when he's a guy who, you know, when given an opportunity, he has come in and really produce for this team, right? Um, so let me get back to the question. Who's most likely to be moved at the trade deadline? Like I would say, it wouldn't shock me if Dunn moved. It would not shock me if one of the vets, whether it's Boyan or, you know, Alec Burks or even Mar- Mar- Marvin Bagley's moved. But my honest answer is that I don't think it's super highly likely that anybody's moved. Like, it wouldn't shock me if this is a pretty quiet trade deadline. So, uh, you know, I don't want to say anything that gives people the impression that these guys are out the door because I don't necessarily feel that way. Yeah, I would say Nerland Noel make maybe nets a second rounder. This this whole situation is weird to me. Like Nerlens doesn't seem to really care too much about playing for the Pistons, and to me, the Pistons don't care too much about Nerlens playing for them. Like that's just my outside perspective. And then I'm gonna say Hami for like a young player who's been struggling through his career but still has some upside. So like that's where I'm at. Alec Burks and Boyan carry over into the offseason. And Wes, it looks like we have yet another trade question from Jeff Koenig. Yes, we do, Bryce. I'll ask it to you from Jeff. Like you said, he asks, if we make a trade this season, which is more likely? Troy initiating the call or another team calling Troy Weaver? So I think Troy will actively seek to trade Nerlens Noel and possibly Hamadou Diallo. I do think Troy is going to get calls on Burks and Boyan. If other teams aren't calling about Burks and especially Boyan, they're crazy. As you said, Omari, like what contender couldn't use really either one of these guys? Burks has been a bucket off the bench. Was he like fifth in the NBA in bench scoring or something like that? And so I think both of those guys, and I could be... I can see teams calling in about the 2020 guys and seeing what's up with Killian, Stu, Bay. I'm not saying Troy's going to take any of those super serious, but I can see teams you know, trying to figure out what's going on with those guys. I'm going to go another GM, and that's not to say that the Pistons won't be making calls. And I mean, it's, you know, it's Troy Weaver. Like, we know he operates. He's always going to look for avenues to either balance the roster out or, you know, kind of like make this team better. Um, I'm saying another GM because unlike last year where the Pistons very clearly needed an athletic big, I don't think this roster has the same glaring deficiencies. And I don't think the Pistons are in a boat where there's just like these pressing needs they need to address at the trade deadline. Like, I think they're in a spot now where, you know, you have your guys in place, like all the veterans are in the contract for next season for the most part. Like, you can just kind of hold steady and, you know, then make some big moves next offseason if you want. So, you know, I think the Pistons have a lot of guys who have, you know, interests across the league. And, you know, they've been answering phones as they always do. And I'm going with another GM just because, you know, if there is a a more sizable trade that happens, I think it would be because the Pistons were offered something that they cannot say no to. All right, Wes, are we changing gears here? Or do we have some more trade questions. We are changing some gears. Uh, this is from Casey Thomas. I wanted to ask this one to you, Bryce, first. So he says... One-third of the way into the season, and Duran is already the closing big defender with Isaiah Stewart. So he wants to know, what do you see as a coach for their best fit together on both ends of the floor? 
It's interesting he asked this because I was listening to a podcast the other day talking about the Celtics and how they'll use Robert Williams at times, which is they actually take Robert Williams and they put him like on a wing non-shooter. So like tonight when the Pistons were playing the Lakers, you take Jalen Duran and you put him on Russell Westbrook. And what that allows Duran to do is just roam and be a shot blocker and a weak side rim protector. And what I like about that defensively, where Duran is still struggling defending ball screens, he just hasn't got the fundamentals of it yet. Now Isaiah Stewart's still in ball screens. You can switch him, which we know he's good at that. He's not nearly as good at drop, but you could still drop with him, especially if Jalen Duran's waiting in the lane to help. So that's kind of, I like that idea. Now, now every team, like the Lakers put a lineup out there tonight that had LeBron and four shooters. So that takes that off the table just a little bit. But ultimately, if you could do that, I like that. Offensively, Amari, you talked about this earlier. The nice thing about Stu and Duran together is Duran knows screen and roll, screen and get to the dunker spot, and Isaiah Stewart's going to stay out at the three-point line. So I think offensively, they already have it pretty well figured out what each of their roles is going to be. I think defensively, ideally, you want Duran as like purely the, the drop big. Like we kind of talk about his upside as a, a, a switch guy, but at the end of the day, there just aren't too many seven-foot guys who are defending guards well um you know maybe during gets there maybe not but i think that's why you have isaiah because you feel better with him in the perimeter he's a big body who can handle some of the bigger you know fours bigger threes uh you know like certain guards like that's more his job and then you could just allow duran to kind of prowl the rim and if you need to play small then you could just bench duran and then you can allow, allow isaiah to play the five and you know he can, he can prowl around or you know do whatever you need to do like yeah like like, like that four out you know line up with the the brian you know, probably not a great fit for Durham defensively. So you just want Isaiah out there. But uh, I think long term, you just get a lot of malleability on defense. Like we've seen other teams kind of have that. Uh, like you even see the Cavaliers, like you have Jared Allen as more of the, you know, protecting five. And then you kind of trust Moby to handle the more mobile um, assignments along the perimeter, which he does pretty well. And the Pistons can mimic that pretty closely. And then as we talked about earlier offensively, you know, Isaiah Stewart is probably more of a pure. Uh, stretch for when Duran is on the floor and that allows Duran to do what he's good at, you know, which is pick and roll, uh, you know, catch lobs, dunker spot, all that. Yeah, like, I mean, I think it's a pretty good fit. You know, if you're going to play two bigs, I think long term, they fit each other pretty well. All right, Wes, it looks like we have some Killian Hayes questions from, or maybe one Killian Hayes question from multiple people. I think everybody uh, might have wanted to ask this to you guys. So, Mario, I'll ask you first, because this is from Matthew Crow. Data-driven Pistons fan, and I loved the username. It was Uh-Oh Maggettio, which I can only assume is a reference to Pistons legend Corey Maggetti. Uh, so he asks, if Killian keeps this up, do you see any possibility of him starting next to Cade over Ivy? And then he says he thinks he's best with the ball in his hand, so he might prefer to run back up point guard. Cool. So I also answered this question in my mailbag, which I believe ran in print Sunday and will go online Monday. So, you know, this is the podcast version of what I wrote in the mailbag. Uh, I think if Killian keeps it up, that he deserves to start because he's just been really good. You know, like he shot the three really well. He's been good for mid range. Passing has been even better than usual, and it's always pretty good. And then the defense has been consistent as well. So, you know, I think he's just a guy that really raises your floor. And it just makes sense. To me, it makes sense to start him, you know, if he's still playing as well, just because you want your best five on the floor. Uh, but so I think it's possible for sure, like 100%. I think the other side of that is, um, you know, maybe it's correlation, maybe it's causation. You know, that's a, a debate that we could have. But Jaden Ivey played a lot better when he was next to Cade. Uh, he was better at the rim. He was better for three. Like he played, make everything was better when Cade was in the lineup and everything has declined since Cade got hurt. So I think the second part of that is if Killian can continue to, to thrive separate from Cade, you let him run the second unit, and if he's playing well, then you close the game with Killian. Do you continue to allow Jaden to start with Cade because it takes pressure off of Jaden to be sort of like that primary focal point, and it's better for his development long term? So uh, if it's just like a pure talent question, then yeah, Killian starts. If it's more of a uh, you know playing guys where they they fit best, and maybe Killian comes off the bench when Cade gets back, just so that Killian can kind of run the offense on his own. I'm not going to ask you to respond to this, but I don't think Jaden Ivey would take very well to coming off the bench. That's just my opinion. I, I don't think he would respond very well to that. Who do you think would thrive more coming off the bench? Because when I read this question, I didn't like it initially, but 
there would be something to letting Jaden Ivey just feast on second units, similar to what we've seen from Marvin Bagley III over the last couple games with him coming off the bench. And we've talked about Benedict Matherin in Indiana, a guy we both liked. And I think he's the, the leading scorer off the bench this year, not just rookies of anybody in the NBA. He's in the running for rookie of the year and sixth man of the year. There could be something to be said for letting Jaden Ivey just terrorize second units that way and that Killian may be more of a stabilizing factor in the starting lineup and closing lineup with Kate Cunningham. Do you think that that may be better for Jaden Ivey? I think it could be. I mean, yeah, you let him go against second units. Uh, you're probably not going against as strong rim protectors. So, you know, things come a little bit easier at the rim. And once you get into the rim and finishing up the rim, everything else opens up for him. And even if it's just temporary, like coming off the bench, could probably just get him maybe the the um, the the rhythm he needs to kind of break out of the slump. So I think there's arguments either way. You know, I think bottom line, like, you know, if Killian's playing better and you're trying to win, then you probably just put him in the starting lineup until, you know, Ivy proves that he can consistently play better. Uh, but even with that, um, yeah, I mean, Ivy's, I think he has the talent, you know, to be a primary guy. And if you bring him off the bench, let him get comfortable, then I think there's upside in that. You know, at the end of the day, he's a rookie. You know, Ben Mavs been coming off the bench all season. He's been fantastic in that role. Uh, you know, I can't say, you know, for certain whether Ivy would take to it or not, but the reality is that he's a rookie and he's been struggling and, you know, rookies who struggle typically <laughs> come off the bench. So uh, I think there's arguments either way, honestly, but if you're just going off of who's been playing better, then yeah, I think Killian starts next to Kate. What about the three of them together? Because I know that that's something people talk a lot about. You know, I would be interested for Cade to come back just to see if that's something that Dwayne, he probably wouldn't do it right because you're not going to take Boyan out of the starting lineup. But do you think in general, those three guys could play together and thrive together a little bit? I don't know. I think they're all kind of best with the ball in their hands. Um, I think Ivy, you know, maybe as an off-ball cutter brings you something that can help it work. And, you know, Killian being pretty good at catching shooting, like that could work. Uh, you know, Cade at the three would be interesting. I think he can play the three. You know, the the offense will still run through him, obviously. So whether he's like whatever he's playing, the offense is going to run through him. So that doesn't really matter. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like we haven't. It's kind of tough just because Cade got hurt. So I think you're kind of projecting some things that we just haven't seen. That we've seen those three play very limited minutes together. You know, kind of through preseason and through those first twelve games or so. You know, I think on paper they have things that could work, but. You know, I think you're giving some stuff up as well. Like, it's probably just better to have two of those guys and then try to get a shooter in, you know, pure shooter in for that third spot. Yeah, I think it still comes down to what you see Cade Cunningham's archetype of player really being. Is it with the ball in his hands? Is it a little bit more of an off-ball score and those type of things? And so, Wes, what do we have next? Yeah, so this was an interesting one from Darius Harris. I wanted to ask this one to you first, Bryce. So he... He wants to know what is Casey's mark on the teams he coaches. So he brings up Pop and Tibbs and how they're more defensive coaches. But really, he's looking for something that you could say is kind of Dwayne Casey's staple on teams that he coaches. Yeah. So one thing I want to say from anybody I've talked to, and I've been around Dwayne Casey, I haven't ever actually got to speak to him. Like we've acknowledged each other. He has no idea who I am. Like, I'm not trying to say that, but you know, I've been in media. I've walked by him on the court pregame, stuff like that. And the people I've talked to, including David Aldridge, like all they talk about is how well respected Dwayne Casey is around the league by everybody, other coaches, players, everybody. You can just tell that he is an extremely respected coach in the NBA. I would say what I feel like is it's about the player development, which we've talked about, but it's about that development on and off the court and teaching these young players how to be professionals. And I've said, even if we're giving up something X's and O's wise from Dwayne Casey, which I could, I could critique that offensively and being more creative and this and that and some of the rotation stuff and not going offense, defense at the end of the game on Sunday night. At the end of the day, I'll trade all of that stuff if he's developing these young guys into pros. If he's teaching Jalen Duran how to be a pro, Isaiah Stewart how to be a pro. It's coming around for Killian Hayes. So at the end of the day, I feel like that's what his lasting you know, legacy is not the right word, but imprint will be on this Pistons team is turning these young guys into professionals. Yeah, in addition to just how well-respected he is across the league, uh, I think two things, you always hear two things about Dwayne. One, uh, his teams always play really hard. And two, uh, his teams are always very well prepared. Now, I know some people are hearing that and they're like, the Pistons are, you know, seven and whatever. So, you know, what does that count for? But 
the Pistons do do play hard. You know, like I think we've seen them really, you know, compete. Like they've gotten comfortable over the last month, and they've been in almost every single game. I think they've had only a handful of double digit losses. And really, off the top of my head, I can only think of two games they just really had not been there. Um, you know, we we saw the Memphis build a pretty big lead early last week, and the Pistons came back from it. Um, you know, like I think I think we've seen that honestly. Like his teams are usually pretty well prepared, and they usually compete pretty hard. And you know, I think that along with the third thing, which is player development. People are talking about how good he is with young players and how he coaches them up and gets them ready to play. You know, we saw that in Toronto, obviously, getting them to where they needed to go. Uh, Those three things really stick out, and I think it speaks to why the Pistons were, even through the front office change, they were pretty confident having Dwayne Casey still lead their uh, ship. I think that tells you everything you need to know. The fact that they did have a front office change and Troy Weaver has stayed with Dwayne Casey through the losing and the restoration and everything. Obviously, that's pretty impressive because we know that it's easy for a GM to get rid of a coach that isn't quote unquote his guy. So the fact Dwayne Casey's still around through all this, I think speaks a lot to who he is and what he is and how he does things. So let's go to a short break here. And then Wes, when we come back, we got a few more Pistons questions. And then I know we got a couple fun ones for the end. All right, hey, Carlos, just a quick idea. How about if I say, hey, this is Sean Windsor, and you say, hey, this is Carlos Maros, and I'll go, and then we'll go back. You want want to try that? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, you ready? Yep. Hey, this is Sean Windsor. And this is Carlos Menares. And we are the team behind Free Press Sports with Carlos and Sean, where we are going to talk about, you guessed it, sports, but lots of other stuff. Like what, Carlos? Oh, we're going to talk about your favorite subject, Sean, food. Um, Probably more food. Arts, culture, sports, TV, movies, you name it. If it's happened in Detroit, we're going to talk about it. And sometimes we're going to have guests in who obviously know a lot more than we do about just about everything. But we're going to have some free press journalists who talk about big stories, folks from the sports world. We're going to be out every Thursday. You can find this podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts. We hope you'll join us. All right. We are back with segment three. And uh, we're getting into some more player development stuff here. So take us away, Wes. Uh, Omari, this one is from Jamel Brinkley uh, asking just kind of any insight into Jaden Ivey's recent struggles, his mindset, uh, his relationship with Casey. And then we did have a follow up from ETS Craftery on Twitter as well. Uh, just kind of more general thoughts about his development to date. I mean, I think his recent struggles. Um, I think a lot of it boils down to shot selection, honestly. You know, I, I think he kind of picks bat signs to drive through the rim. You know, a lot of his threes, even if they go in some time, I think are, uh, they're too long or just too early in the clock. You could probably get a better shot. And he is just very much kind of going through the, oh, the NBA is a lot different from college. Like a lot of stuff I got away with from college, I absolutely cannot get away with. I'll get my shot swatted. Uh, you know, I will air ball. Like, you know, it's just, he's kind of going through that right now. Uh, you know, like I think he's a confident guy. He has a good relationship with Dwayne. Um, obviously, they're committed to developing him and giving him a chance to kind of play through this as they did with Cade and through Killian. Uh, you know, he's fifth overall pick. They're going to give him a very long leash and allow him to make those mistakes. And, you know, maybe if this continues, you know, another month or so, maybe you start to get into some deeper questions than that. But, uh, you know, he has full support from the staff. He has full support from Dwayne. And honestly, even just, you know, from the convos me and Bryce had before the season, I think, a lot of what we're struggling with now is stuff that we kind of predicted, honestly. Like, I don't think any of this is really that surprising. Um, you know, there's a reason why uh, he was a top four prospect, but almost universally four, you know, instead of sort of in like that top three, because uh, he just had some basketball stuff he had to work on. And, you know, quite simply, even if it has to do with Kate or not, I just think teams know what he's good at, but he's bad at. And uh, he's been playing to his weaknesses more than his strengths. So, you know, Bryce, I think you agree with a lot of that, but curious to hear what you think. No, hundred percent. I wrote down the word settling. I think he's settling for threes right now. Like you said, early in the clock, there was one tonight where he had Anthony Davis switched onto him and, he, and Anthony Davis was backed way up and Jaden Ivey backed up to like half court. And it was one of those where you wanted to see him just attack him downhill and get, I don't even care if Anthony Davis blocks him. I didn't want to see Jaden Ivey settle for, a three in that situation. I think this is also a possibility of him getting worn down a little bit. You talked about this, Amari. I think sometimes we just say, oh, he's settling. Well, he's probably tired mentally and physically and emotionally. And when you get tired, you settle for easier shot attempts where usually for him are just going to be walking two threes. I want to say this, just the, what have I been around? Two games. He's an ultra competitive young man. 
I've seen him after wins and losses, and I can just, the body language I saw post-game, you could tell how competitive that young man was. And, and I'm saying in a good way, just super, super competitive. Uh, the game in Detroit where he got brought into the media room after the game, you could tell he was just ultra frustrated. And so I think he's going to continue to work and get better. And a lot of rookies are struggling right now. Ben Math is going through a little bit of a struggle time. Shaden Sharp, who's been great in Portland, has been struggling. Keegan Murray's been up and down. Like, they're all going to go through it. And I, I would just, if I could... Jabari Smith, too. Sorry to, yeah, to, to, yeah. to cut you off, but he's been struggling, too. So Yeah, it's, it's across the board. If, if I could suggest one thing to Jaden, it'd be you know, keep getting downhill, keep getting downhill, like keep being aggressive to the rim. Don't settle for those shot attempts. That would be the biggest thing for me. Yeah, his game is predicated on a, a aggression. And when he settles for threes, like that's what the defense wants. He's not, he has never really been a strong shooter. And they're not going to tell him to stop shooting threes. But yeah, he needs to get downhill. Like he's got one of the best first steps in the NBA. He needs to have confidence in that. Uh, you know, I think one thing that would help him a lot is like, play for the foul sometimes more than for sure. the layup. Yeah, I love you know? it. Like, I think a lot of guys that like, get downhill, you know, they know that they're going to get swatted sometimes. Like, you know, most teams have at least one good rim protector now. Uh, you know, so play for contact. You know, like that play you were talking about earlier. Yeah, AD's lurking, right? All right, so get into his body. You know, don't just go for the layup. Get into his body and try, try, to, try to make him foul you. Uh, you know, like that's one of that should be one of his best skills, just getting the opposing big into foul trouble. And, you know, there's other ways he can leverage his athleticism that we're not seeing him do yet. I think he's been pretty one track minded. So that's just sort of the progressions of the NBA and just stuff you have to figure out as it goes on. Yeah. And I'll just continue to emphasize. I think that mid range is the biggest area of growth for him. I did an article here recently to plug some of my own stuff, but I think that's a huge area for growth for him. So Wes, what do we got next? We got a quick hitter here for you, Bryce first uh, from big smooth. He just simply asks, will Killian be a piston next season? Yes. And the funny thing is, one month ago, it would have been a hard no. So I think Killian Hayes is on this team next season. I think so, too. Um, you know, I think the avenues where he's not is like either you include him in like a, a, a pretty big trade because you could get a star over, over that summer and you got to give up a young guy to get it done. And you're just like, you know, we have Ivy, we have Kate, you know, like this is what we need to do. Or two, you get the second overall pick and you have Scoot and then it's like, well, we can't have four ball handlers so we got to part ways with one of them and I'm not saying Killian would definitely be that guy but I'm saying it opens the door for, you know, somebody to get traded but beyond that, I mean, you know, Killian either gets extended this offseason uh, or like, you know, this fall whenever they want to get it done or they bring him into restricted free agency and, you know, and then next summer you kind of figure it out or the summer after next, that 2024 uh, summer but either way, uh, it would just take a very worthwhile trade, I think, for Killian to not be here. Like, otherwise, I think you try to lock him into a reasonable deal and just keep him here for a long time. It is crazy how quick some of these decisions are coming up for those 2020 draft picks. I mean, again, to kind of get into the next season, kind of being the, the season where they make some sort of leap, man, it's like, well, you, you, you hope because Isaiah Stewart, Sadiq, and Killian are going to be making a lot more money, so you, you hope that they're playing well enough to win you some games, right? You know, if you, if you don't want to pay them, then that means you missed your picks. So, uh, yeah, like this roster is going to get a lot more pricey over the next couple of years for sure. And transition uh, for this next one, Omari. So this is from Fueled by Motown. He says, uh, put yourself in Troy Weaver's chair with the impending extensions for Killian, Stu, and Sadiq. What do you do with each guy? And if you do decide to pay them, how much? I would get Killian, like, I would try to get Killian to, like, a four-year, like, if I could get him to, like, $10 million a year, I feel fantastic. And that is, if he continues the way he's been playing now, maybe that's a little bit of an underpay. Agreed. And if I'm Killian, maybe I'm, like, I'm just going to go into restricted free agency and try to fetch a bigger contract, you know, which... You know, if you're being offered ten million, maybe that makes more sense. But uh, you know, I, for me, I want to get Killian for less than I think my absolute max is like is like thirteen. You know, and if he continues playing like this, then the, like the price goes up, right? But I think that you know, for a guy who probably projects as like a borderline starter, like maybe bench, but like definitely a high level guard, uh, I'm actually gonna look up how much Tyus Jones got paid this offseason because I think. Killing could be in like that Tyus Jones tier of like, if he starts 40 games for a year, you feel all right. You know, if he's like your bench guard, you feel fantastic. And I'm just going to Google this real quick. Uh, yeah, he signed a two year, $29 million deal. So that's like a tick under 15 million. Uh, like, I think if you get, like, again, you get Killian for like 13, like, I think you feel pretty fantastic about that. Isaiah Stewart, I'm like 15, 16, like, just what he brings defensively and knocking out threes. And then Sadiq, um, 
I think Keldon Johnson signed for like 18 or 19. Like Keldon Johnson's also shot the ball a lot better than Sadiq has. So I think that'll probably bump Sadiq down to like maybe that same Isaiah range. Like, you know, you get him for like 16, you probably feel pretty good. So, yeah, I mean, one, Tyus Jones is one of the best backup point guards in the league, and Killian hasn't proven to be that yet, even though we think he could no. be that if if he continues to play the way he has, not necessarily on Sunday, Mike, but in general how he's played over the last month. The other thing is, and I know the question I believe asked about this, you do have the salary cap jump. And by the time these extensions kicking in, that will be part of this. So what do you say Tyus got fifth, right around 15? He, he got yeah, he got two years, 29, so like 14 and a half a year. So like to me, that probably means Killian's going to get 15, considering Killian's not Tyus Jones, but the salary cap is going to be significantly more than what Tyus Jones signed for. I think Killian's I, also a lot younger, so yeah. he presumably has upside that Tyus Jones does not have. So. Like I think there's $20 million a year talk around Grant Williams. Well, like, so Isaiah Stewart, like, is he in that ballpark? You brought up Keldon Johnson. But again, Sadiq's contract is going to go into the new CBA. Like, we have to re... I, I need to dive more into the new CBA and what those salary cap numbers are actually going to look like. Because I think some guys are going to get $20 million a year that we're all like, what? How is that even possible? And it's just going to make sense under the new CBA. So I, I think under 20 for all these guys would be incredible but I wouldn't be surprised, especially if Stu becomes 40% from three or something like that, or Sadiq gets back up into the upper 30% from three, if one of those guys ends up hitting 20 a year. And that's the thing. I'm, I'm speaking from like a GM or like my ideal yeah. contracts for these guys. You know, and I'm also like not a big spending person in general. So, <laughs> you know, so maybe that's a tad conservative, but you make a good point about, you know, the, the, you know, just the salaries just going up every year, you know, like you have a new TV deal, you know, coming like not too soon from now. So, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, like pre-inflation, right? Like we're about to have some inflation soon and like, you know, 13 in a few years is not going to be 13. It's going to be like, you know, like eight or nine, basically. So, yeah, I mean, maybe just add two million to everything I said and it feels like a little bit more realistic for what the guys will actually get. But I'm thinking more from like, I want these contracts to be good deals. You know, I don't want to be stuck paying a player and, you're still kind of gambling on on their upside a little bit more. But no, because I even remember like Jalen Brown, like before he had even really, you know, become what he was now. Uh, the Celtics signed him to like a really, really big deal. Like, I don't know if it was a max deal, but it was like, like pretty high up there. And everybody's like, Jalen Brown hasn't done anything. Like, why would you do that? And then two years later, he's almost as good as Jason Tatum. And it's like, okay, that's actually a really good contract for him. So, you know, I think some of that just kind of comes down to being able to accurately project, you know, where a player will become. Now, Isaiah Stewart, like you mentioned, Grant Williams, you're talking about 20 a, a year for him. But what Grant Williams gives you in the playoffs is so valuable that that adds a little bit more to it, you know, because he is a guy that's playing super heavy minutes in the playoffs because of what he gives you defensively and also the shooting. And I think Isaiah Stewart would be able to give you a lot of that. You know, so I'd say 15. Realistically, if Isaiah Stewart is shooting 37% in the playoffs and he's, you know, your best all-around defender, He's way better than a fifteen million a year player, especially when you're talking about two thousand and twenty-five money. So that goes up. So, uh, you know, what I'm learning from this is that I'm a cheap GM. That I probably lose my young guys, but at two to three million to each of those guys, that's probably a little bit of more of a realistic ballpark for this upcoming offseason. If you and I were GMs together, we would we would be so far under the salary cap every year. We'd be the cheapest GMs in the history because yeah, I'm the same like, way. Ten million dollars? What? No, that's crazy. Like, what? No, I'm not doing that. Yeah, like that. That would be every. Kate hasn't even made an All Star game yet. We ain't giving him more than ten million. I mean, here's the thing. Well, yeah. Some of these dudes are getting sixty million a year. Go look at some of the recently signed max deals. They're sixty million a year at the end of those contracts, Amari. So you think about that, and dudes are going to be making twenty million dollars coming off the bench regularly in the NBA moving forward. So. Uh, I I, I got to wrap my head around it. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of money. But I think, like like you said earlier, if you get all those guys for like less than 20 a year, you probably feel pretty good. Uh, but, you know, again, you kind of face the risk of like uh, like low-balling them. And then they're like, well, I'm just going to go into restricted free agency. And that's a deep guy which is like 19 a game and good efficiency. And now he's a max guy, right? So, uh, you know, yeah, like you're probably, like as of now, none of these guys are max guys, but you probably want to pay them. Uh, maybe a healthy percentage lower than that just so that they're taken care of once they're 25 and actually performing at the level you want and then 
and now it's a good contract, but you kind of have to overpay early until they get to that point. If you look at the way these contracts usually play out. Yeah, a lot of important decisions coming up for Troy Weaver. Let's just say that. So, Wes, we got one more Pistons one and then a couple fun ones. I know one still involves basketball. We do. And so this one's going to go to you first, Bryce, because it's right up your alley. And I'm going to read the name. I'm sorry. I Google translated it. It says Lear Latchkitch. I'm sorry. Uh, but they ask, with a healthy Cade, a second-year Ivy, and an improving Killian, is Scoot Henderson the pick if the Pistons land number two? He is the consensus number two, but that would be four guards drafted in the Troy Weaver era. Uh, I know you draft based on talent, Yes, right? yes, <laughs> yes, yes. You draft Scoot Henderson because there is a tier break. First it's Victor, then it's Scoot, then there's another tier. Now, I will say this. Wes has talked me into entertaining some trades, but I want a king's ransom if I'm going to trade out a number two. And I'm going to quickly throw out a few names that fit perfectly into the Pistons roster. Number one on the Pistons fit board for all of you fans should be Cam Whitmore out of Villanova. Just recently started playing and is tearing it up. Asar Thompson, the other twin, and you could throw a man in there as well, even though he's a little more ball dominant. And then Brandon Miller, who's really exploded onto the scene at Alabama. Those are the fits, especially if Detroit falls out of the top two. Yeah, you take Scoot Henderson, and I would not trade Scoot. Like, there's nobody underneath that that Scoot tier that interests me enough to trade Scoot. Like I said, you watch Scoot play from a newbie he's doing at 18 years old in the G League, tougher competition in college. Uh, just his athleticism, just his feel for the game, his ball handling. Just everything. Like 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 I said, like imagine Prime John Wall. Now imagine that Prime John Wall was a pretty good shooter. And he was a good bionator. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying he wasn't a good bionator, but he's a Kyrie Irving bionator. Like he's not just above average. He's like generationally great. And you're talking about a guy who's gonna run the NBA for a long time. If Victor were in this draft, Scoot would be the number one pick and it really wouldn't even even be that much of a debate. And the fact that Victor is just generational we've never seen before. Uh, says a lot about just how good Scoot is. So, you know, I think when you are building a team, you always have to draft for talent, always, because the superstar talent you draft will make or break that rebuild. You don't draft for fit. You don't pass on a generational guy because you already drafted guys that play that same position. Um, of course, Kate Cunningham could become a superstar, but he hasn't gotten there yet. You know, Ivy could become one, but he hasn't gotten there yet. So, you know, you don't pass on another potential superstar because you're hoping that the guys who haven't proven it eventually prove it. You take, you know, the guy who has the most potential of all those guys, which is Scoot, and then you figure things out from there. Uh, you know, like, yeah, maybe you'd have to part ways one to Killian, Cade, or Ivy if you get to that point. But that's just what you got to do. You know, like, I'm sure there are no Golden State fans who, you know, regret that Golden State traded Monte Ellis Curry over like Monte Ellis, right? Like Monte Ellis was the guy, like he was good. You know, he had star potential, but at the end of the day, Steph was Steph and he was a draft pick that made the most sense for the future. And now they have four championships to show for it. So I think these are decisions that seem really hard in the moment, but then you think five, 10 years of the future and it's actually a pretty easy decision. You take the guy with the most potential and then you keep it rolling from there. So Killian Hayes was drafted number seven in a draft as Scoot Henderson would have went number one. Jaden Ivey was drafted number five in a draft that Scoot Henderson would have went number one. That's all anybody needs to know. That's the kind of prospect that Scoot Henderson is, and that's why you don't pass on him. Literally the only reason he's not the number one pick in this draft is because Victor is truly generational. And we throw around generational all the time. Cade Cunningham was really good, but he shouldn't have been like generational label. That's reserved for Giannis and LeBron and those types. He is 7'5 and is banging threes, and he plays like a wing. So Scoot is the real deal. Now, maybe it changes. Maybe I end up being wrong, but that's how I feel about him right now. And I don't think there's any way you pass on that kid. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in complete lockstep. Yeah, you just, the Pistons should not be worried about fit in any general at all, period. Like, I know people are also going to be like, how do you take Wimby when you already have Duran and Isaiah Stewart? And it's like, because he's Wimby and you take him, you know, you figure everything else out later. So, yeah, I just hope we can. I don't want to have to keep answering, like, should it take Scoot or Victor questions? Like, the answer is yes. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care who the other player is. There is no scenario where the answer to that question will be no. It will always be yes. So let's just settle that right now. Yes, you take Victor. Yes, you take Scoot. 
There's no debate. Barring a, a victor injury or a scoot complete fall off over the next two months in the G League, our answer is not changing. But yeah, we're talking about the versions of them on December 11th, 2022. There we go. All right, Wes, I know we got a fun one coming up and I get a chance to show off my movie knowledge being greater than Omari Sanko for the seconds. Yeah, I'm going to get crushed on this one. Well, since you're prepared, you go first. This is from Aaron on Twitter. He says, create your best fictional starting five from non-basketball players. Okay, first, Aaron, I love you for this question, and I love all of our listeners, and I appreciate all of you, and I love all the questions we've ever been asked, but this was my favorite one by far, and I took it very serious. So at point guard, I'm starting from white men can't jump, Sidney Dean, okay? I know he's a little selfish, but I'm going to coach him up. I'm going to get him to distribute the basketball. Hold on, Omari. As shooting guard... This is a little unfair, so I have two guys. One is Jimmy Chitwood from the movie Hoosiers. Now, you could say this isn't fair because that is actually based on a true story, even though Jimmy Chitwood is not the person's real name. But I grew up wanting to be Jimmy Chitwood because I'm from a little town in nowhere, Kansas, and that movie is based on a little town in nowhere, Indiana. If you say that doesn't count, then I will ignite the white men can't jump backcourt and put Billy Hoyle along with Sidney Dean in the backcourt. At small forward, I have Thomas Shep Shepard from above the rim. If you don't know Amari, that's the guy that plays in the park without the basketball. It's Have you seen the movie? So here's the thing. No, go, yeah, Bryce, go ahead. I would just let you cook. I would let you cook. Thomas Shep Shepard at power forward. I figured this one out later because you can't use the blue chips, guys, right? Because Shaq plays Neon Bodo and Penny Hardaway plays the point guard. But Ricky Rowe is not played by an NBA player. So I will take Ricky Rowe from the movie Blue Chips at power forward. He got recruited by giving his dad a tractor, which also hits home with me. Not that American University gave my dad a tractor. I wasn't good enough. And then this is the one I'm really proud of. I will take Saleh from The Air Up There, which if you guys haven't seen the movie, it's the 90s Kenya version of the new Adam Sandler movie, Hustle. I see a Mari-looking movie. Hey, The Air Up There is a good movie. Saleh was a dude, though. And so that is my starting five. All right, I'm just going to go with the Monstars from Looney Tunes. <laughs> you know, we're talking about, you know, some eight feet, you know, 400-pound aliens who took talent from the best basketball players of that era. They took talent from Charles Barkley, Bugsy Bogues. Time out. Like, just The question says non-basketball players. Right, they're not basketball players. They're aliens they, from outer space. They took, but they took talent. They, they, they took talent from actual basketball players, but they're fictional. They're not basketball players. They lost also. They lost to Bugs Because Bunny. Michael Jordan. Because Michael Bunny. It was No, they lost to Michael Jordan. And I couldn't take the two squad because they have Michael Jordan, even though that was a fictional Michael Jordan who could extend his limbs like <laughs> Mr. Incredible. So I, I, I wasn't going to take them. That was a down-to-the-wire game that came down to a game-winning shot. And the My Stars gave Michael Jordan everything he could handle. Um and the two squad also like Daffy Duck could not hoop at all. Like it just it just drags the overall team down. I'm just going with the monsters. Like I just don't see how you could top aliens who are like built. They're all built like Wimby, and they all took talent from like the best basketball players of the '90s, except Jordan. Like you can't top that. I'm just taking the monsters. That's my answer. Like I just don't see how anybody else could compete with that. Anyway, if you guys if you guys haven't watched Blue Chips, go watch Blue Chips. That's a great movie, and it's kind of funny because like now in today's NIL deals and stuff like that, it, it, it's really interesting. But uh, my starting five wins, perfect. I think that should add a point to my Sheeter Sham score, which would make it now. Wes says no. Okay, we got one more question, Wes. Um, I want to talk about this one also because uh, we like to talk about food on the pod. So this is the last one. So he sneaks... This is Trey Moffat, but he sneaks a little basketball in there. He says, should we trade for Cam Reddish? But then at the end of it, I think the real question, name the top three ice cream flavors. So, Trey, you're my guy. I appreciate all your support of the pod and Motor City Hoops on Twitter and all that stuff. When I read this, I was like, Cam Reddish in three ice cream flavors? Like, what is he talking about? Like, I read it very not intelligently whenever I did that. I'm going to overlook the Cam Reddish part. I just want to talk about ice cream, Omari. So, Number one, chocolate chip cookie dough. 
Number two, cookies and cream. And then I literally had to look at my wife and go, babe, what is like another one of my favorite ice cream flavors? And she's like, I don't know. You always just get banana split. So I'm going to put banana split for my third ice cream flavor. All right, cool. Well, we're united at number one. Chocolate chip cookie dough Perfect. is the number one ice cream flavor. I can't really, like if I had to, if I could only eat one flavor of ice cream the rest of my life, it'd be chocolate chip cookie dough. Like not even really a debate there. Uh, number two, uh, you know, like you said cookies and cream. I was going to go like mint chocolate, but like I'm going to switch it up a little bit. And I am going to go coffee. I like coffee ice cream. Coffee ice cream is good. That's only two. I know. Well, your face, it looked like you had a retort, so I'll give you room to reply. But I'm just keep going here. All right. Uh, okay, so chocolate chip cookie dough, um, coffee. I don't even know what my number three is. I feel like at that point, it's just like the feel. It's a pretty big, like I could go brownie ice cream, but, you know, along the same lines of cookie dough and, and mint. I would say just like straight chocolate ice cream. I like chocolate, but it, it's just a little too like sweet for me like i don't like things that are just like insanely sweet so i would honestly just go like plain vanilla for the third one like if you get like a really high quality vanilla ice cream it's really good like i know people see vanilla as like boring or plain or whatever but you get a good like ben and jerry's vanilla ice cream like that's that is like literally the good. context around vanilla right like vanilla literally means plain and boring and no, it doesn't. It just means vanilla. Vanilla is a flavor. Like it has become that because people put vanilla into that box. But <laughs> that's because they don't eat good vanilla. Like vanilla in and of itself is a good flavor. Plain would just be like milk. Like you're not even adding vanilla beans. It's just you just turn the milk into ice cream and it just tastes like milk. Vanilla milk does not taste like vanilla. Milk tastes like milk. Vanilla is vanilla. They're two different things. I'm so confused. What do you, what what is your go to ice cream container? container what do you like what do you mean cone waffle cone oh. cup i like i like just having it in a cup because cones are sloppy and it's a hot summer day and the ice cream's dripping down your hand and it's just a big mess so i just like a nice contained bowl or cup where i can just get a spoon and like scoop it out that's a very vanilla answer from you amari i will d- take a waffle cone because it adds a little bit of crunch with the softness of the ice cream and you got to have the texture. And, you know, the, I, I assumed I would get that kind of answer from you. Yeah, but, you know, you also look like you're six years old when you have an <laughs> ice cream cone in your hand, which you have to consider. So I just like having a boat. I don't like having ice cream on my hands. Like you have to have a napkin. Like let's say you go to a truck and you get an ice cream cone. And it's like 90 degrees outside. You have like two minutes before that thing starts dripping all the way down your hand. So not only is your hand a complete mess, you have to hurry up and eat this ice cream cone. Like you're also just losing ice cream. Like the ice cream's dripping down your hand onto like the sidewalk. Like I'm speaking as somebody who's clearly done this a few times and just has a very strong distaste for having ice cream on his hand. So just give me a bow every time. Like I want preserve my ice cream. Like I paid for the ice cream. I want all the ice cream. I don't want to drip it down my hand. I don't want to, have to wash my hand or like lick the ice cream off your hand and I'll look ridiculous in public. Like cones are not practical. Like I like practicality. Just give me a nice cup. Give me a nice bow. Like, I'm good to go. You like, don't like messes? No, like, I don't like messes. Like, I don't like I don't like food on me. Like, it needs to be in the container. So that's... I can't wait till you have kids. I hope we're still doing the pod whenever you have kids. I can't wait until the first time you take your kids for ice cream and they have just ice cream all over their clothes and their hands. And then they want to... They want a hug from daddy and now it's all over your clothes and you got to get to the Pistons game and you don't have time to change. If my kids want to look ridiculous, that's their prerogative. Like, that's cool. You know, you're five years old. So if you want to look ridiculous, like, that's all right. People expect it from, like, a five-year-old child. They don't expect it from a 28-year-old man. I have to, like, I have, like, I know people. Like, I have to look presentable. I can't be out in public with an ice cream cone dripping down my hand. Like, that's just, I know people. That doesn't fit. That doesn't fit my lifestyle anymore. Like, I, you know, like, I just need the con- container. And I'm not going to hug. Like, my kids come with an ice cream, like, you, you you don't get a hug. Like, you can't hug daddy covered in ice cream. Like, that's not how that works. Bro, you can't turn down a hug anytime the little man or little girl asks for it. Uh, I can't yes, wait. Yes, you can. We, yes, you can. I'll just be like, like Omari Sanko for the third. You need to clean up. <laughs> Because you're covered in ice cream. Like, I'm not getting ice cream on me just because you have it on you. That doesn't make any sense. That's not fair. I'm going to teach my kid about fairness. Like, what's fair is that you wash your hands and make sure you don't have ice cream on your shirt before you give daddy a hug. I think that's I think that's fair. I cannot wait. I pray more than anything that we're still doing this pod when this happens for you and for Wes. So uh, we, we've, we've, got, we've got off a little bit here. Wes, I was going to get some of this stuff from you, but I don't know that we have time today. So put it in the outline for next week. Wes, thank you so much for everything. Amari, take it away, my guy. Thanks again to everybody for the mailbag questions. We'll do it again. 
probably closer to the trade deadline uh, where we can just do a whole trade mailback pod, I'm sure. So uh, thanks to our editor, Kerry Jr. the second. Our editors, Kerry Jr. the second and Robin Chan. We got them both in this time. It only took us a month. Uh, the executive producer, Antoinette Delgado, and our sports editor, Kirkland Crawford. Also, shout out to Wes for uh, moderating our podcast episode today. We'll talk to you all next Tuesday. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.